concerning our majestic seating of our ascended Lord as head of his church, we first of all read Psalm 110, one of those messianic psalms that speaks of the lordship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 110, let us read the whole psalm. The Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We go to the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, who what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God. Let us respond with the singing of Psalm 2, the stanzas 1 and 2. The text for the proclamation of the gospel this afternoon 
is God's word as it is summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you find beginning on page 533 of your book of praise. And here the catechism continues to busy itself and busies us with the second main part, that is the part concerning our deliverance in the blood of Christ, and in particular, also for the last number of Lord's Days, we have been busy with God the Son and our redemption, Lord's Day 18, having dealt with the ascension of our Lord and Savior into heaven, it now asks and answers, why is it called and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. By his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. In response to the proclamation of the word, let us sing together from hymn 41. Christ, above all glory seated, King triumphant, strong to save. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, God has gone on high with a joyful cry. He is Lord of earth, magnify his worth. Those are the exuberant words of the sons of Korah, those sons of Korah who were intimately involved in the liturgy at the tabernacle and temple the words that you find in Psalm 47, words that rejoice in the greatness of our exalted God and Savior. He is the Father who sent his Son into the world for the sake of his bride, the church which he loves so very, very much. He's the Father who called home his Son, that he who had now has the whole world in his hands might subdue the people, even the nations, under our feet. That risen and ascended Lord is king of all creation. And he lives on high for our benefit, for our good. And surely that should make us very rich and very happy. Because of his lordship, the Church of Christ is preserved by God in Christ against the fury of the whole world. We confess that in the Belgic Confession and other confession of the Church in Articles 27. Though for a while, we confess there, she may look very small, even extinct in the eyes of men. This afternoon, we give our attention to that exalted position of our Lord Jesus Christ, having learned and confessed the fact, the value of his elevation on high last week, we give our attention now to the meaning of his position at God's right hand, that very special position which speaks of his honor, his majesty, his glory. We need to do so in all humility and reverence, realizing at the same time our responsibility, that responsibility that we continue to have, young and older, in to serve our exalted Lord. Well then, that we might rejoice in him and continue to await his coming with reverence and in perseverance of faith, 
I proclaim to you the gospel concerning our ascended Lord, who is seated in majesty as head of his church. Then we give our attention to three things. To the evidence of his power on behalf of his church, to the benefits of his power in support of his church, and the culmination of his power for the comfort of his church. In so doing, we follow, indeed, the outline of our catechism in this Lord's Day. Our ascended Lord is seated in majesty as the head of his church. We give attention to the evidence, the benefits, and the culmination of his power. First, the evidence of his power on behalf of his church, on our behalf. We know that our Lord's work here on earth was done. That is, his work of salvation, that wondrous work in which he laid down his life voluntarily for his sheep in his death on the cross, that death which we celebrate next week, Friday. He died once for all to bring us to God. And that work can never be repeated, for Jesus Christ is our only and our complete Savior. And yet when he ascended into heaven, he did so to continue to work from there. Work on earth is done, the work of salvation for you and me, but his work in heaven continues. And that's why Luke, who wrote not only his gospel, but also the book of Acts, can say at the head of the latter, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that's a clear indication that Luke knew our Lord ascended on high, that he might continue his work, the demonstration of his power on behalf of his church, preparing her for the day of his return. That's what the Lord Jesus is busy with today. And now the church here below faces many challenges. will face that great tribulation of which the Bible speaks she needs very much to be comforted, doesn't she? To be encouraged in her, in her struggles. And the answer of our catechism to that first question, why is there added and sits at the right hand of God, is then written for that comfort, our comfort, that we might be convinced that Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself, that simply means to show himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. It is proof that he did so, ascending to heaven on behalf of his church. And if we look at the accompanying text references, we see that is not only according to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, but also what our Lord said, for instance, in Matthew 28, as well as John 5. In Ephesians 1, we read it, Paul spoke of God's incomparable great power, for us who believe. Incomparable great power, second to none, for us who believe. And that power, said Paul, is like the working of his mighty strength. It's an exhibition of his power, of his dunamis, as it says in the original, a power that our God exercised in Christ for our benefit, that seated at the right hand, Christ might rule all and everything for our sake that makes us a very privileged and a very blessed people. In Matthew 28, we read of the church's mission mandate given by Christ, to whom, as it says there, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given. And in John 5, 22 and 23, we hear our Lord's own testimony concerning the judgment which the Father entrusted to his Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And there he is. Think about it. There he is, our exalted Lord and King on his throne in heaven, looking down upon us as we are gathered in the fear and the joy of his name right now. In charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name, no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, for a little while, no, but forever. And all this for the church, which is his body. For that church is not a forgotten nobody. Sometimes we might get that idea when we think of ourselves as being so very, very small. But no, 
she is not a forgotten nobody. Though it is scoffed at by a secular world, it's Christ's body in which he speaks and acts through the proclamation of the gospel and which, by which he fills everything with his presence. Christ's ascension is really God's glorious amen that he did not abandon his people, didn't leave anything to chance. People do that at times, maybe even often, but Christ did not. He completes his purpose for us, as the psalmist said already in Psalm 138. Did he ascend to his grand coronation as king of the universe? Did it for you, did it for me. His father had promised that there would one day be a kingdom of righteousness, of peace, and of glory. One day the powers of death and hell would be banned. God's people would have a central place in that kingdom. A kingdom that would measure, as the psalmist says in Psalm 72, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Citizens of Canada, many years ago when they built the parliament buildings in Ottawa etched that verse, those words from Psalm 72, on one of the buildings in Ottawa, still there to be seen this day. And so our Lord went up to his throne. He took his place where the angels stand and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, at God's right hand. That position shown in God's word to be one of power and honor, of majesty, of charity, to be placed at someone's right hand, clearly shown also in David's dealing also with Solomon. It means that that person shares a most intimate relationship to the one who is next to you. When Stephen, the first martyr, was about to die for the sake of his true testimony concerning Jesus, then you read in Acts 7 that he, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in the hour of his death, Stephen saw his Lord of life, who in a moment would welcome him into his presence. He saw him crowned in glory. And now Christ's coronation was not unexpected, that is, by those who believed God's word. The psalmist and the prophets had spoken of it. So Isaiah, in chapter 52 of his book, predicted the glory of the servant of the Lord, that is, Jesus Christ. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be, he'll be raised up and will be highly exalted. So the prophet Zechariah spoke of that man who is the branch, the branch who would sit and rule on his throne. He saw him as both king and priest. I think also of Psalm 68, a psalm that prophesied about our exalted Lord. When you ascended on high, you led captive in your train. Your profession has come into view, O God, the procession of my God and king into his sanctuary. The psalmist there sees the Lord Jesus Christ descended from far away, as it were, just as a king who had won the victory on the battlefield would lead a procession as he came back into his hometown, leading oftentimes captives indeed in his train. So the Lord Jesus Christ made captive by grace through faith his children as he enters into his throne room. And then there is that beautiful text also in Hebrews chapter 2, where it says that when the Lord Jesus Christ came into his presence, he came as the high priest. Remember, the children will know the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies. He had on that beautiful breastplate on which he had what? Twelve beautiful, sparkling, precious stones, each one of them standing for one of the tribes of Israel. And then it says in Hebrews 2 that when Jesus came into his Father's presence, he said, Here I am, and the children that you have given me. Here I am, and the children you have given me. All God's children, all those who believe. Already then, the Lord Jesus Christ had us in mind. We belong to that people whom the Lord Jesus Christ carried with him into heaven, thereby assuring 
Indeed, everlasting life for all those who truly believe. And while that psalm, that Psalm 68, first of all spoke about an earthly king, David, and a powerful position to which David had been called, yet it, it testified to David's own glorious king, the one who rides the ancient skies above, who thunders with a mighty voice, verse 33. The Lord, the God of Israel, who gives strength to his people. And then, only to name one more, is that Psalm 110, which we read. That may very well have been David's coronation psalm for his son Solomon, written before he came to the throne. And clearly, it is a messianic psalm. It speaks volumes in only a few verses about our ascended Lord and Savior. The Lord says to my Lord, said David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Look what that glorious ascended Lord would mean for David and for his troops called to battle, his kingdom, his citizens. A mighty Lord would extend his scepter, his royal rod, the symbol of his royal authority from Zion. The only place where you still see a symbol, something like that, in our modern word is when, indeed, also the parliament, when it meets in session in Ottawa. Then you have that man who's dressed in his robes, indeed, also of office. He comes into the House of Commons, and he has what in his hand? something that looks like a scepter. Indeed, it is really a symbol of a royal office, for he represents Queen Elizabeth, her majesty. Well, that ascended Lord has the might and the power by which he rules all his people. How great, therefore, is God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. While we had become deserters, of God's army, runaway rebels, cowards whose lips were not filled with shouts of allegiance but with lies, I think of we and our first parents in paradise, following the lisping lies of Satan, the snake, God did not only come to the rescue, wash us, save us, but he came to make us kings and princes to him again. He ascended as our king and he wants us to reign with him. He wants us to reign with him. Elsewhere, the Bible says that God's children, his true children, will sit on thrones and they will judge angels. That must mean the evil angels. The day is coming when all that is under Christ's feet now will be under our feet. That too is Hebrews 2. For in Christ ascending to heaven, he took us with him. He's there, and so our citizenship is now not, not just in Canada. No, our citizenship, our royal citizenship is already in heaven. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion writes, So it was that Christ, in whom the Father will be exalted, and through whose hand he wills to reign, was received at God's right hand. And the purpose of that sitting at God's right hand is that both heavenly and earthly creatures may look with admiration on his majesty, be ruled by his hand, obey his nod, submit to his power. Now the right hand of the Lord does valiantly, says the psalmist. It's highly exalted. There is not a power in heaven or on earth that is equal to his. He lives to exercise it on our behalf. He promised by the mouth of Malachi that he would tread down the wicked so that they would be ashes under the soles of their feet. It's true. We do not see that as yet. You look at the news broadcast on television or you open your newspaper up and it looks like anything but. How much misery, how many indeed dictators in the world flaunt indeed what they consider their supreme power. And yet, God in Jesus Christ is in charge. We are still on this earth in this dispensation, and the earth is still groaning, as Paul writes. 
in Romans 5. The enemies of Christ are still on the loose. That's true. We long for God's righteous kingdom to be consummated, to be fulfilled, to be revealed on a new earth. We see, however, a great deal of unrighteousness, immorality, the rise of arrogant people who dare to war against God and his anointed. And you see it even in some churches which still dare to call themselves reformed as they chip away at the doctrine of salvation. Pray that there may be a return to the truth. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews was one who knew. In chapter 2, he speaks about the high provision to which we were created. And he quotes extensively there from that beautiful Psalm 8. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. And yet he realized, as he said in verse 8, that at present we do not see everything subject to him. Did he lament? Did he lament? As an instrument in the hand of his exalted Lord and Holy Spirit, he wrote, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. So therefore let us not lament. Let us indeed see Jesus. See him of whom Paul wrote that he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In everything, the supremacy. Everything, number one. On land and in the sea, as in the air. In the boardrooms, the parliamentary caucus chambers, as well as in the consistory room. In business and in industry. No, not that all these segments of society give him the honor and the glory that he covets. On the contrary, his name is already steadily being removed from many institutions. Still hard at work, a whole group of people in the United States to try to remove his name from the coins which more than a hundred years ago in the United States, citizens of the United States asked for, in God we trust. Now, many, many people want to remove it because they do not believe in God and therefore certainly do not trust in him. Yet, the long-term and lasting benefit is that our ascended Lord drives history to its culmination. He even uses the things that we say are bad in this world. Indeed, the disappointing things that are happening, even the persecutions He uses them also to drive history forward, that indeed the day may come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's true, it will not happen until the last person, the Bible says, whom the Lord Jesus Christ has set apart for himself and has come to faith, has been rescued not only from earthly dictators, but from sin and from death and from hell. When that last person has come to faith, that's when Christ returns. That's why we must continue to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We need not go far to see the evidence of his power. When you look with faith eyes, you see it right here in our midst. When you look with faith eyes, today we are gathered by his word and spirit in the unity of true faith. Oh, I know even those who believe sometimes doubt, often are troubled, Subject to temptation, not to mention the scorn of unbelievers, the hatred of a world which is seething, violent in sin, and yet here we are, here we are, or rather, here God is in our midst. Here is his word. Here are children growing up, these many lovely children that I see here, also this morning, God's children, covenant children baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Many offering their lives to him, even as teenagers, gladly doing so, even at a younger age. Here are Christian parents. Christian parents training their children in the fear of the Lord. Here, profession of faith is made. Here, couples are married in the Lord. Promise indeed to serve the Lord together as husband and wife. Look around. Listen around. 
We hear, we see, don't we, the footsteps of this coming glorious king when you listen indeed with eyes that are tuned in the channel of faith. Even though our eyes are still clouded, you see the fulfillment of prophecy as God's judgment is coming. You hear people still being pulled out of the darkness of superstition and unbelief. While we are sitting here, somewhere on some mission field, both nearby and far away, there are people coming to faith and saying, with wide-eyed wonder, is that who it is? And is that who Jesus Christ is? Our trouble is, is that we so easily fall in line with a slovenly, worldly lifestyle that is blind to the kingship of Christ. We so quickly borrow the language and aspirations of the world. Do we always readily treasure the lordship of Christ, the cherished position of the church, a city set on a hill, as the Bible says, on a hill? Do we treasure the Lord that way? That is, the way not only of reverence, although surely that, but the way of gladness, the way of rejoicing, knowing the victory is ours already in him. Are the eyes of hearts full of lights? And do we with Paul and the saints of Ephesus know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of our glorious inheritance, an inheritance guaranteed by our ascended Lord? Do you and I honor him and bow before his majesty, realizing that, that we are not our own, but as we confess in that beautiful Lord's Day 1, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us ask ourselves, as I must ask myself, is it a joy to you, my dear brothers and sisters, to be a Christian? Is it the treasure that belonged to his church, his holy Catholic Christian church, which despite her weaknesses, and they are many, is kept by him and ruled by him, and one day will be planted by him on a new earth, in glory. Or, and may God prevent it, do we think little of him or about him. May we be strengthened by him and in him. May we be excited about his word that proclaims his lordship over you and over me. For look, and I come to the second point, the benefits he has showered upon us as a consequence of his ascendancy are many and they are gorgeous. The catechism asks a question that oftentimes is, is also a question even of a young child. What does our Lord do in heaven for the sake of his church? Well, what's, what's he doing there? We don't even know where heaven is exactly, other than I know, you know of one of God's special children. When you asked him, he would always say, heaven is... If you asked him where hell is, he would say, oh. that's about as close as you can get. Heaven is, wow, what's he doing there? When I look at the picture of my dearly beloved brother who passed away suddenly in the middle of the night in his mid-50s, and I look at his picture and then I sometimes can't help myself asking, what's it like up there, my brother? What's it like in that glorious place, sinless place, surrounded by those angels and by the church of Jesus Christ? How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? Well, the first thing, says our catechism, quite soberly, is that he pours out his gifts upon us, his members. He pours them out. He unleashes them, as it were, the floodgates of his treasures and gifts. He, he doesn't eyedrop his gifts to us. A little bit here, now and then. No, he pours them out. He unleashes those floodgates of his treasures. Secondly, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all his enemies. And that, too, is a great benefit. For, boy, do we have a lot of enemies. His gifts are many. And they're varied. Hardly had our Lord ascended to heaven, but he did what? He sent his Holy Spirit down. 
in abundance. When the Holy Spirit came down, you will hear it again when we celebrate the Ascension or the Pentecost. Then he came indeed as a flood of waters, as a Niagara Falls, as it were, in that room where the disciples were gathered together. When the Spirit came down on the church, he accompanied his word. We may say that God's word is the primary gift of his spirit. Elsewhere, the Bible says it is the sword of the spirit, a sword that cuts and penetrates man's heart. It cuts even to the division of joints and marrow. That means it cuts for him, those whom God has set apart for himself, to himself, And that word is the gospel of salvation. It tells us of God's great love for a world lost, completely lost in sin. It calls us to repentance. It shows us the way in which Jesus Christ goes before us. Did Christ go home to his father? He richly endowed us with his word. And indeed, it is a vast benefit indeed. Where would we be? Without the word of God, going around in circles, we wouldn't know where we were headed. Like many people who don't know the word or reject the word, they go around in circles. You sometimes see them, those people, and they indeed have a deadly look about them. They look so sad and so sullen. And if you should ask them, where are you heading, my friend? All they could say is, I don't know, but I'm heading. What a life if you can call it life. And yet Christ continues to gather his church, gives hope to the hopeless, opens the eyes of the blind. It's Christ's great love letter, the word is, it's his ascension day gift to us, so we must be faithful to that word. Cherish the faith that is ours so that we may embrace it and not be false to it. Oh, and then besides that powerful word, there are so many other gifts. Think of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul speaks there about the special offices in the church. The gifts of ministers and elders and deacons. Yes, frail, human, sinful people, yet gifts of God. Given that the saints might be equipped for works of diaconia, that is, for Christian charity for true heart service to brothers and sisters and to neighbors near and far, until we all reach maturity in Christ. Until we all reach maturity in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions other gifts, some of which were specific, temporary gifts. In the early New Testament church, the laying on of hands, speaking in tongues, prophesying, the working of miracles, and yet there were many other gifts which are the church's permanent possession in their exalted and glorious Lord. Just think of the gift of faith. That's a permanent one. A gift of faith, hope, love. Those big three of which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 13. And then there are baskets of the fruit of the Spirit, joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, not to forget self-control. All gifts of the Spirit that are ours because of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And Christ distributes these from his throne room in connection with his word, so powerful that it can change hearts of stone into pliable hearts of flesh flesh, so that those who at one time were enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ and only cursed him, now confess the faith. The Holy Spirit can do that by means of the word. And with those gifts, new lives begin to form. The kingdom of heaven becomes a reality in the lives of many. The ascended Lord makes prophets, priests, and kings out of destitute paupers, slaves of sin and the devil, in love with the world and themselves, makes them instruments for good, even in the lives of others, helping others, praying for others, that grafted into Christ by a true faith we might become and be more more a true spiritual house. Yes, and he defends us, says the catechism. 
defends us mightily with perseverance against all those sworn enemies. Though the world more and more laughs at Christ's bride and her old-fashioned confession, her morals and her ethics that are so behind the time. You go to church twice on Sunday? What are, are, are you a little bit? Uh, that's the world. Yet he preserves us. No, not by sealing us up in some bottle and then throwing us into the ocean, but reminding us that we are children of God, sealed in baptism by his mighty promises, giving us faith and hope to stand up against our enemies, preserves us by sheltering us in his love, and at the same time giving a Christian courage to stand in the front lines and to do battle with the foe. He mobilizes his angels, as you can read in Hebrews 1, on our behalf. Can you see them? You can, when you look with faith eyes. Indeed, they're there, and those angels are active. They are active also in our midst this afternoon. What it requires of us is that we, we hear the shepherd's voice, that we follow him, for only... If you stay close to the Lord, only then are you well protected. We must be more like children who, when they have to cross a busy street, they grab hold of the hand of a loving father and mother so that they can cross that street safely. That must be also the essence of our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, staying close to him, not running away from him, as not a few people also in our day and age are running we must hear the shepherd's voice. If you do the opposite, if you cast your lot in with this world and like the prodigal son, oh, it may seem for a while you are free. Ah, now you are free to do your own thing for a while. But you become a slave and ultimately a captive of the world and the devil. And two, we are powerfully protected our catechism makes a reference to Revelation 19 where you read of that rider on the white horse. The white horse, the war horse. A rider called faithful and true. With justice he judges and he makes war, said John. And we're told his name is the word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has another name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's clear that this rider is the exalted Christ who goes forth in battle. For us, his dedicated heavenly troops follow him for his bride and against her foes. That rider was dressed in a robe dipped in blood, dipped in blood, his blood. For he is our exalted Savior whose blood covers our sins so that we will not perish when his judgment comes over the world. The day when many people will say, mountains fall upon us and hills cover us, when they finally come to the realization that the Lord Jesus Christ is about to judge the world. This rider is our bridegroom. Jesus Christ, he loves his bride. And that Lord has removed the whole curse from me. The whole curse comes to judge with his pardon of our sins guaranteed. And the result of his gracious work is that he will take all his chosen ones, that is all the ones whom the Lord Jesus Christ had set his mark, into the joy and glory of heaven. Is that not reason to rejoice? Let us rejoice in it. And then we will be safe even as we await Christ's second coming. And that coming, that wait must not be an, act, an inactive wait. It must be a living, an active, a joyful reliance on our exalted master. It means going about our lady lives while looking, looking up, looking up to him who would not only wash us, but who would sanctify us completely. And one day, one day, take us to glory. And that will indicate, and I come to the third point, the culmination of his power, and it will be for the comfort of his church. Christ's ascension to God's right hand, it actually inaugurates, 
it's an inauguration, a celebration, an inauguration of the final chapter of the history of the church, as well as the history of all mankind. The final chapter. It inaugurates that. <coughs> Excuse me. That chapter culminates with the return of our Lord on the day when Christ's war measures act, as one scholar has called it, will be complete. It will be that day of which the Catechism says that he will cast all his and my enemies into utter gloom. But he will take me, he will take me to himself into heavenly joy and glory. That's judgment day. Now, it is so that the word judgment has an awesome, yet not such an appealing ring to it, does it? When you think of judgment, is that appealing, that word? Not, not really, is it? We might note, however, that Scripture does not speak so much of judgment day as it speaks of the day of the Lord, the day of his coming, or the great day. All three of those expressions are used in the Bible. Does not mean it won't be a terrible day, for it will be for unbelievers and for those who today gnash their teeth against our exalted Lord. There is a strong element of warning about that day that's directed to the church, yet its primary purpose is to comfort us. It surely is also here in this confession of comfort. The Catechism is a book of comfort. And we await that day, great day with, with bated breath, with joy and with great expectation. It will be the grandest wedding day that you can ever imagine. Our heavenly bridegroom who claims his bride today will receive her in splendor and establish her in grand and exclusive mansion on a new earth. Nowadays in this dispensation, a great deal is made of famous brides like Princess Diana and that huge train that she had behind her as she entered Westminster Chapel or also Catherine, she too with her gorgeous white, on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the bridegroom, the whole of his bridegroom, the church of Jesus Christ, will be dressed in splendor that no eye has seen, that can only be imagined. Sinless splendor. The invitation having been gone out that we might sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb in life everlasting. Oh yes, there will be terrible and violent times that will precede that day. There will be that man that the Bible speaks of in Revelation, a man of lawlessness. He's also called the son of perdition, the Antichrist in the Bible. And before, indeed, the end of days, he will receive room to maneuver, Perhaps that is already going on today when you see a proliferation of evil breaking out all over. The boycotts and the persecutions of Christ's church will be most severe. But all power has been given to our ascended Lord. He still has the whole world in his hands. Believe that, confess that, and you do not have to worry. Ask the Lord to make his lordship a reality in your life and you do not have to fear to come before the judgment seat of God. For this judge, who on the one hand is an avenging Lord, has said that nothing can separate us from his love. He, our Lord Jesus Christ, willingly submitted himself to God's judgment. He suffered the most agonizing separation, especially in those three hours of darkness on Golgotha's cross that instead of hearing his curse, which is directed to unbelievers, get away from me into outer darkness, we will hear his blessed voice. Come, enter into your rich reward. While he was on earth, the Savior promised it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
the culmination of Christ's power on the day of his coming will mean the final vindication of his church, the church that has remained faithful, Christ's holy Catholic church that has not compromised her doctrine of salvation, the church that doesn't see sin through the fingers but uses the means of grace, including that of church discipline, a church that lives in love, genuine love of God, and our neighbors. If she fails the Lord, then she can be sure of that judgment that begins at her door. For indeed it is true, the Bible says so, the judgment begins not on Young Street or some other, begins at the door of the church. Because she was given much, therefore will be responsible much. It is the church that received the first gift of God's word. She will be the first that is called to account for what she's done with the Savior to whom that word testifies. So then let us long for that day when Christ will take me, very personal here, the catechism, and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly glory, joy and glory. Will take me. Yes, even me conceived and born in sin, subject to condemnation, yet a child of God, a believer, yes, one whose faith is often weak, one who, like Paul, often has a war going on in his body between his mind in which he serves the Lord and his flesh, his sinful flesh, one who needs the grace of God every day, every moment, also when you get older, yet one who does sing from the heart. In you alone, O Lord, we own our hope and consolation, our shield from foes, our balm from woes, our great and sure salvation. For Christ's sake, amen.